great old hymn. Yeah, and I love to hear the worldviews are incredibly important. I hope you got your notes tonight on your way in. Anybody need notes out there? Anybody still need notes? If you slip your hand up, the guys will get you all fixed up. Right here, this little guy needs some notes. Can we get him some? Anybody else need notes out there? Right here? Brother Barry needs some notes. Anybody else? Just wave at these guys. They'll fix you up. Right behind you. How many of you were alive before 1957? Before 1957. Actually, pretty good bunch here. Pretty good bunch in here before 1957. Uh, this past week, I don't know if you saw it, it was in the news. Uh, I think there was even a TV special, but uh, the Reverend Billy Graham celebrated his 95th birthday. And uh, back in the 1930s, Billy Graham uh, was pretty much locked in as a Baptist, and he went to, actually went to Bob Jones College back then, which was a Methodist school, but all the Baptists like Bob Jones. In fact, they still do. Bob Jones University is kind of a Baptist university now, but, um, but he kind of had a parting of ways, and, and a lot of Baptists wrote him off. And in fact, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there were a lot of Baptist churches that were preaching against Billy Graham. And uh, he, whatever you'd find on his theology, or if you have a dispute with his theology, that's on you. But I watched the message that was televised, and the gospel was crystal clear. 95 years old, and it still gave a, crisp, a crystal clear worldview of the gospel. And it led me to go back, and, and because I've read his autobiography, and I've read some of the books that people have said some things against him. And, and so I said, well, what's going on here? So I went back to 1957 to the crusade that he was doing in New York City. And they opened the meeting with this great gospel hymn and and George Beverly Shea sang, and, and I think he might have sung I'd Rather Have Jesus. It was, may have been the song that he sang. Um, and, and then uh, Dear Lady sang, His Eye is on the Sparrow, and I know he watches me. And, uh, and they, then they got up, the, uh, kind of the MC got up, and he said, Look, here's what's happened. We've been here at, at Madison Square Garden for 12 weeks every night. Everybody hear what I just said? Twelve weeks every night. We can't even get the people to come to church on Sunday night now. That's one time a week. They did it for 12 weeks straight, and they had to leave because there was an event in the garden, so they got kicked out finally. This is 1957. Now, you go back into the 1920s and 30s, and Billy Sunday would go into a town on the Sawdust Trail at a you can say whatever you want about him, too, if you read some of his biographies. It's, it's kind of curious how history gets twisted sometimes. Uh, but he'd go into a town and preach in most towns until every bar in the city was shut down. Now, it was shut down because all the bartenders were getting saved. And they'd come weeping down the sawdust trail. And, and before that, you had Moody and, and Sankey who went to... London and did the same thing there as they were doing here. And it's curious in 2013 how American worldviews have changed dramatically, drastically. And that's why I asked how many of you have been born before 1957. 
Have you guys noticed that things have changed a little bit over time as far as worldviews go? And it's not just that things are different, it's that they've actually changed. Um, different is, you know, that they sang, I'd rather have Jesus with a guitar instead of a piano. Um, but change means that they invent totally new things, totally new worldviews. And, and so tonight, I think it's important for all of us, especially for the young people in the room, to understand, well, what is a biblical worldview, and what does that actually mean? I mentioned this morning, and I looked it back up, I, I hadn't written it down, um, Barna did a study, the research group, did a study just a few years ago. Here's what they found. I looked it back up, and the numbers were a little different than I had first looked at. 91% of all Americans said, I believe in God. Okay? Out of that 91%, 42% said they were born-again Christians. So you try to figure out, what does that mean? How can you believe in God and not be a born-again Christian, right? So 42% said that they were born-again Christians. And, and then, out of that bunch, they asked them seven questions they defined what a, a biblical Christian worldview was, and they asked them seven questions. Now, these were the people who said, not just that they believed in God, these were the people who said they were born again. Okay, so they said, I know Jesus Christ, I've been born again. They actually used that phrase. And they asked them the seven questions. And out of that group, 9% actually lived by a biblical worldview. Not did they know it, but they actually lived by it. And so some of the questions that we'll get into in this series later on um, was, did God have any impact in your life decisions? Was the Word of God prominent in your daily life? And so we'll get into some of that. But tonight we start with this foundational thing about God's existence. And we cover tonight in Lesson 1 the existence of God. And we say this right at the top of your notes, kind of as a header. If you don't believe God exists, your worldview will be atheistic. If you do believe God exists, you must wrestle with what that means for your life. So there's no middle ground. You can't say, well, I believe in God, I just don't really want to follow Him. I believe in God, and I just hope everything works out with all of that. And you hear people who want to be in the middle of this. I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. But I don't really want to live by His book. And so as we start talking about this, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1. And we'll notice something striking right away. You obviously know the Scripture. It's not going to be anything new to you. Scripture opens with the fact of God's existence. Look at the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Now there is not a book that was written before Genesis to say, before we can tell you this story, we need to prove that there's a God. Before we can tell you the story of who God is, we have to give you all of these proofs. Of who he is. So instead of offering proof, and we say this in your notes, first blank here, instead of offering proof, the Bible assumes that any person 
with a logical thought process, will recognize his existence. Okay, so the Bible just assumes up front. And at this book, sometimes we think, well, what's in the Bible for me, right? Because we're a me, me, me society. We're a self-help society. You know, the Bible's not really written about us. And sometimes we think way too much of ourselves in our interactions with the Bible. The Bible is the story of God. It's what it is. From beginning to end. Um, one of the preacher, when I was a tiny little boy, W.E. Dowell in Springfield, Missouri, he always used to say from the first in in Genesis to the final amen in Revelation. And I always liked that phrase. Of the Word of God's true. Every part of it, from the first in in Genesis to the final amen in Revelation. Now, there are textual revisionists who've been around for quite a while. Um, Satan was the first one. When he said, half God said. Just in, in a couple of chapters after this. But there have been higher critics ever since the 1850s and 60s who have said, you know, there are parts of this book that have some problems. There are stories in this book that do not have proper documentation. And here's my question to you. If the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God, how are you going to be the one to tell us what part's not true? God's the one who gave it to us. He's the one who wrote it. He's the one who preserved it. And we have it here today. And so the Bible assumes right from the beginning that anybody with a logical thought process is going to recognize his existence. And so there are three questions that must be answered. And even if you want to write out beside of yours tonight what the answer is, that's fine. What do you believe about God's existence? I think that's a great question to start with. What do you believe about God's existence? Now, can I just share something bluntly with you up front? No matter what you believe about God's existence, it does not change the existence of God. Alright, so you can say, well, I don't believe that He exists. Well, that doesn't change anything about it. Alright, we can walk out in the parking lot tonight and you can say, I don't believe that car is blue. But if everybody else in the room says, well, that's a blue car, then who's the fool? Who's the idiot? Alright, so... When it comes to God's existence, it doesn't really matter to God as far as His existence, what you believe, but it does matter to you. And so what do you believe about God's existence? And hopefully everybody in here tonight would say, well, duh, he, He's the Creator. He exists. Um, he originated everything. He's the uncaused cause. Here's the next question. Why do you believe that? Now, that's an important question. Why do you believe that? Because there are kids in this room who, rightly so, if somebody said to them, does God exist? And they said, yes. Right? And the next question, well, why do you believe that? Because my daddy told me that. Right? Because my mommy said it's true. Because my Sunday school teacher said it's true. And that's not a bad answer. We need that type of leadership and exposure with children. They have to be told the truth. By the way, don't ever take this philosophy that, you know, we're just going to let our kids be exposed to everything, and when they're old enough, they can decide what's true. That is the worst possible thing you could ever do. It's the worst possible thing you could ever do. 
you might as well go ahead tonight when you get home and go in your kid's room and put a box of matches and a blowtorch and, uh, you know, some uh, <laughs> fireworks, firecrackers, just throw it all in there and just kind of let them do whatever they feel like doing and they'll figure out the truth. Minus a hand, right? They'll figure out the truth. And, uh, and so that's not the right way to do it. But here, here's the third question. And it's the biggest one. What difference does that belief make to how you think and behave? Isn't that a great question? See, I don't really think we have anybody here tonight that says, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. We, we believe in God's existence. Why do we believe in it? Well, because of the Bible, because of creation, some of the things we'll talk about tonight. But the biggest question really is, what difference does it make in how you think and behave? See, there's a huge difference between a theoretic belief and a practical belief. Right? I have books on my shelf uh, written by people who've climbed Mount Everest. I believe they've climbed Mount Everest, but I've never climbed Mount Everest. I've never even been there. I think I've actually seen it from a plane once, but I'm not sure if that was really it. I think I saw it once. And, it, and so uh, I have books in, in my office about uh, all sorts of different things. And uh, you could look on the internet and you could find out about fly fishing. And you could say, I like fly fishing. Well, how many times have you been? I've never been. Right? Some people say, well, man, I tell you what, Pastor, I like parachuting. Well, how many times did you go last year? Well, I, never, I didn't go last year. And it, sometimes that's the way Christianity is. So I'm a theoretical Christian. I believe in God, but it has nothing to do with how I actually live. Does that sound like a Bible-believing Christian? No, that sounds like a pagan religionist. That's what it sounds like, a pagan religion, religionist. So let's talk about uh, the first two things here, types of revelation. And then we'll discuss uh, some things about God's existence. First thing we see, number one, general revelation. General revelation. What can we perceive? What can we perceive? Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. And it, you can read Psalm 19, and you know what that general revelation transforms into throughout the psalm? All of the sudden, in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. And you read a little bit further and it said, More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. So that one psalm goes from general revelation to special revelation. Creation to the Word of God. Look at Romans chapter 1. If there's any chapter that you should be familiar with in having a biblical worldview, it is Romans 1. I cannot think of a chapter that is more important for people who go to churches like this one to be familiar with. 
In fact, it would be a great chapter if you ever at your family Bible time decided to memorize a chapter together over years of time. This would be a tremendous chapter to memorize. It talks about worldviews. That's what it talks about. And, and God talks about how He has revealed things. Let's start in verse 16. This is Paul talking to people he had never met in a city where he'd never been. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now look here, verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk there. Habakkuk 2.4 is the verse that Martin Luther saw that caused him to turn from Catholicism. Verse 18, another thing is revealed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And it describes mankind and their unrighteous behavior, their unrighteous acts. Now look at verse 19. And I want you to notice, this is so incredible. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. Do you know, if you were the only person on earth, the Bible says that there is enough knowledge just because of the creation of you to know there's a God. That which may be known of God is manifest in in you. Did you know that you have 13 body systems that are working tonight and you probably don't even know all their names? Right? And we could try to get our biology students to come up with all the names. But you have body systems that are working tonight that you've never even heard of before. You've never thought of before. If I asked you where's your pituitary gland... Most of you have no idea. Down here? I don't know. Where is it at? Unless we have some medical people in here who can help us. But um, we don't really know that much. When I was in high school, I remember our biology book said that remarkably the human body, this was when I was in high school, the 1980s, it said remarkably the, the human body may have as many as 100 billion cells. Isn't that phenomenal? Do you know the biology books now say that the human body has 75 trillion cells? Somebody goofed. That's when Kepler walked outside in the 1600s and said there may be as many as one million stars. <laughs> there, may, there could be that many, possibly. We don't know for sure. And now we know there are billions of galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars. And God is so infinite and He's so massive. And verse 20, I think, talks about this. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No one has an excuse to have an unbiblical worldview. Period. Now when God says period at the end of a sentence, He actually means it. 
just to share that with you up front. God means what He says. They are without excuse. It doesn't matter if people believe in all these false worldviews. They have no excuse. And when they stand before God and they try to come up with this, I think, therefore I am, and we believed in the existence of this, and we were thinking our way around this, God's going to say, well, what do you think now? You're before my throne. I'm right here. And it's going to be a brutal, horrible judgment at the great white throne. So there's general revelation. But then number two, and this is really neat, special revelation. Special revelation. And this is what God says about Himself. This is what God says about Himself. And you can read this all through the Scriptures. If you have a, a Bible that does red, letter, red letters when Jesus speaks, especially in the Gospels there, it's fun to look through and just see what He said, isn't it? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door. And he continued by telling people who he was. But go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And you may remember this. God called Moses. God called Moses at the burning bush. And you remember God said, Moses, come over here, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And Moses said, right here, I'm coming. And uh, so he began to talk to God. And let's skip down to verse number 13. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So this is the God who exists in all eternity, speaking to a human being, trying to spread the message of who he is to a people that he loves. And it's special revelation. And we really see four types of this. One is in historical events. It's in historical events. Now, I don't need an archaeologist to tell me that Pharaoh and his army was buried in the Red Sea. But you know what? It's pretty neat to read an archaeologist's study on shields and horse bones that were found in the Red Sea. That's a pretty neat study to read. I don't need an archaeologist to tell me that Jericho was actually a city that fell with walls, massive walls, 40 to 60 feet wide. I don't need them to tell me, but it's pretty neat when they say it actually happened. Now, I heard the strangest thing um, a couple weeks ago. There are atheist archaeologists who are now saying that, yes, the walls of Jericho did fall down, but here's why. It's when the children of Israel walked around, they had, I'm not making this up, not making this up, they had had aliens from other planets who had injected special powers in them as they walked around. And because the aliens injected special powers in them, the walls fell down. And that also affected during that, that time period the sun standing still for 10 hours because there was an alien invasion. 
Now, I'm not trying to be mean to people who think there's aliens and all this stuff, but listen, if you would rather believe in an alien than admit there's a God, you are an F-O-O-L. God said it, not me. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I mean, you're just completely off the edge. And yet there are people who think that. They really think these things. Um, the Church of Scientology, there's weird cats out there. They will sell you a machine for a lot of money. Sometimes up to $100,000. And you have to have a trained person to run the machine. And they will run the machine on your body as much as 12 times a day. Of course, you have to pay them to do it. So that they can take the alien spirits out of your body each day. The light that has become negative within you. And so when we talk about historical events, we're talking about legitimate, historical, factual events. With true personalities who existed. Like King David, and King Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel, and Adam, and Eve. You know, the Bible is the strangest thing. Every person in there actually lived. There are other religious books that have fake names of fake places with fake tribes in fake locations that have never been proven by any archaeologist anywhere. And yet, in our state, 36, 37% of the people believe it. And so you know that we're facing a tough thing here. When we talk about biblical revelation. So historical events. Here's another one. Special words. Special words. And at different times, different ages. I'm not going to get too deep into this. God used a still small voice. God has used an audible voice. And God, even in, in the beginning chapters of, of the New Testament, spoke in dreams and visions. Now, I would be cautious with this. Okay, If you think that God is speaking a vision to you in a dream... Be cautious with it. You may have just eaten too much pizza the night before, okay? Um, there are certain gifts and, and ways that God has interacted with men during the apostolic age that have passed away. And yeah, certainly God can do anything, but He does do it according to His Word, and He does do it without confusion. For somebody to stand on a platform and take people's money by saying He's a faith healer, and then to take money and go open a hospital? Did you hear what I just said? For somebody to take people's money as a faith healer and then go open a gold tower hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It actually is. I've been there. Old Oral Roberts. Faith healer. Now, here's a faith healer in my book. Are you sick? Boom! Are you sick? Boom! A faith healer ought to go to other hospitals and heal people. But if it's a racket, if it's a ruse, if it's a trick, he'll take people's money and not actually do that. And so be careful with the sign gifts. That's all I'm saying. Don't want to get too deep into them. All right. Next one. Presence and personal involvement. If I said to some of you tonight, has God ever spoken to you in your life? You would say, He speaks to me all the time. Through His Spirit. 
He leads me in ways in my life. And you know that He's real. And you know that He exists. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Had Job ever seen God? Nope, but he knew that his Redeemer lived. Do you know that Job didn't have one of these? He didn't have one word of it. But he said, I know my Redeemer lives. And so there is this presence and personal involvement. And then the Bible, of course. The Bible. God's gift to us. Okay, now let's get to these final things. And I want you to really see this for these next few minutes. Since you're at church today, let's assume you believe that God exists. Here's the question. How should this knowledge affect the decisions you make today? Okay, so if God does exist, and He does, and you believe He exists, and you do, I'm almost certain that everybody in here would say that, then how does it affect the decisions that you make? Here's the first thing. And that some people do not like this one. If He is God, then you are not. If He's God, you're not. You are the little G-O-D of nothing. You're the God of nothing. Look over at Isaiah chapter 29. If He's God, you're not. And yet when I hear people talk, and even when I've talked before, Sometimes we say, well, I'm going to do this, and I've planned this, and I've got this going on. And we begin sometimes to think that we're the God of our own lives. We wouldn't actually say it out loud, but we begin to think it. Isaiah 29, look, look at verse 16. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. I want you to notice this question. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? Oh, that's a piercing question. It's such a great question. And the book of Isaiah is a great book on deity. Here's another one I want you to see. We'll go to Isaiah 55. And here's another one that you probably won't like. Isaiah 55, verse number 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's what I want you to see in the notes. His rules matter and your preferences and expectations don't it's tough to swallow his rules matter what he says actually means something i don't know if you've ever been around someone and your first thought was this person really likes to hear himself talk Hopefully you've never said that at church. This person really likes to hear himself talk. Sometimes I get that impression when I'm hearing a politician speak. Or sometimes when I heard certain people from all different varieties of life. Like, sometimes I just want to stop people after a few minutes and say, what did you actually say? 
right? Because you talked for five minutes just so they could hear themselves speak. But we don't know what they said. And you try to talk to a person like that about God often, and you know what they'll do? They will give you their opinion of God. They'll give you their theory of God. And when it comes right down to it, guess how many of your theories about God actually mean something? That would be none. There's nothing that really matters except what he's said. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Beautiful, beautiful psalm. So much I love about this psalm. I love how it ends as it says, Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. But I want to go back to verse number 14. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I am awake, I am still with thee. Here's what I want you to know next. The ultimate purpose of your life is not up to you. If you have a biblical worldview, then the ultimate purpose of your life is not up to you. James talks about in James 4, where he says, he's talking to him and he says, what, what are you doing? You're saying we're going to go do this and we're going to go do that. And he said, what you should say is, if the Lord will, let's go here. And if the Lord will, let's do that. Now, when we say things like that, people think, well, that's just Christian talk. Right? If, if it's God's will, we'll do that. If it's God's will, she'll get better. If it's God's will, we'll go there. You know, that's actually what God wants us to do, but he wants us to mean it. Because sometimes what if it's God's will means is, if it works out good, and if it doesn't, it's, it's hard for us to gauge God's will, isn't it? Well, what's God's will on this? You have people ask that all the time. How can I know what God's will is on this thing? And of course, you put on your pastor's voice and you say, Well, in the beginning, God. And you just talk them through it. No, you say, look, I struggle with that in my own life. How do you know what God's will is? for your life. Sometimes we talk about how God puts desires in your heart to do things for his kingdom and how God opens doors and how God closes doors. But you know, if you're just walking into your future with your plans and you've never once considered how God fits into that, then can I just tell you this and you're not going to like it, you don't have a biblical worldview. Isn't that harsh? If you are planning your life and you have never asked, talked, listened to what God has to say about it, you don't have a biblical worldview. You have a Christian religionist view. What that means is, you're willing to say you have a God, you're willing to go to church, and you love to sing songs, 
but you're not willing to actually have a personal walk with the Almighty God. This is tough, tough stuff. And we get further in as we go through the series. Here's another one. There's three ways that people can live according to God, according to this worldview. People can live in ignorance of God's will. People can live in defiance of God's will. Or people can live in compliance with God's will. And those are the only three options. You can bury your head in the sand and you can act like God didn't call you or God didn't equip you. But the truth is, God has called all believers. He has commissioned all believers. We have been given something to do in His kingdom. It's pretty plain. And, and so we won't get too deep into that, but I want you to see it. Last one is this. The burden is ours to seek Him. He is willing and wanting to be found. James chapter 4. The burden's ours to seek Him. You probably know this verse from 1 John. We love Him because He first loved us. Right? We love Him because He first loved us. And He sought us and He's provided a way of salvation for us. But we have to seek Him and it's our burden. Look at James 4 verse number 8. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So God tells us to draw nigh to Him. He says, seek me, and I will be found. Search for me. Jesus told the people, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and there they which testify of me. Here's a quote from George Barnum. I like this quote. The, the appearance on earth of God Himself as the person of Jesus Christ is tangible evidence, not only of God's existence, but also of the value He places upon who we are and what we do. See, if God didn't really care about us, why did Jesus come? Jesus is a historically proved entity. History says He lived. Jewish historians said He lived. Roman historians said he lived. And they also admitted that their centurion said his body wasn't there. We don't know what happened to it. And yet, there are people who struggle with this point of God's existence. And I don't think, once again, anybody in here struggles with God's existence. But I think we do struggle with what it means in our lives. I think we do struggle with, well, what does that make me think? How does that make me act? What should I do about it? And so that's the first structural point of a biblical worldview. Let's stand. We'll be dismissing a closing word tonight. Right after we dismiss, we can have the outreach team just right up front for about two minutes, and then we're going to get you out to all the other service groups. And Brother Andrew is going to come and, and speak to the outreach group for just a second about what's going on here in the month of November. And uh, look, if, if you'd like to take any of our outreach materials and uh, just hand them to somebody in your neighborhood, you can do that anytime. We always leave them out in the back, and there's tracks and materials for you. And uh, I sure do appreciate all of you who are inviting folks to, to
the church, and good to see all of you out today. Father, thank you once again for who you are. We thank you that you do exist, and not only that you do exist, but that you want us to know that you exist. You've revealed it to us very plainly, very clearly. There's no question that you exist. There's no question that we have a creator. There is a question of how we should respond. And I pray that we would respond by making you the center of everything we do in our lives. That we would not walk through any day without you. That we would not make any decision without you. That we would not raise our families or have our relationships without you. Guide us through this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.